the Toddcast Podcast at Facebook.com slash Toddcast Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us here in uh, Vancouver, Canada. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, one of my favorite places, so I can't, uh, can't hate on that. Yeah, no doubt, eh? What a, what a beautiful place. Where do you live? Uh, I'm living in L.A. right now, okay. but I can't say I love it as much as Northern California. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's like awesome. two different states, pretty yeah, much. Totally, 100%, yeah. Joe, of course, everybody's going to know you from your time uh, from Top Chef on Bravo TV. Seems like an obvious place to start, but I want to get there in a sec. Okay. I'm curious, how old were you when you realized you were going to go down the chef path? Surely it, it, it must go back to being a kid, cooking with mom. That's exactly right. Um, I mean, I know, I remember like as a kid, like young, young kid playing in like the basement, wanting to like, we, I pretend to be like a hotel owner or like a hotel like recept receptionist i yeah. guess or like a front desk person sure and like my parents would come in and i would like i just i think the whole idea of hospitality and being in the hospitality industry was something i like was just drawn to at a very young age and that whole like idea of taking care of people and bringing them in and embracing them was something that i was just like kind of drawn to mm -hmm. and then it also I think then my mom shaped my direction because food became the whole focal point of family and life growing up. I mean, she tried her best to cook almost every meal, bring the family together. I mean, this was before everybody had cell phones, so it was like, turn off the TV, <laughs> everybody around the, t uh, around the table, and, you know, we have dinner. Even if it's like something she picked up from the store and didn't cook herself, it was like food was that, like, gathering place. So I, like, saw how important and powerful food can be. Mm -hmm. And then it was just kind of cooking alongside of her uh, that I think drew me to that. And, you know, I wasn't a very, I guess, athletic kid, you could say. So I wasn't like I always wanted to go outside and play sports or run around. I was more drawn to like watching Food Network and looking through my mom's cookbooks and things like that. So I think it was very early on that I was drawn to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. little did I know I would be in the position I am in now. <laughs> right. And, Fast forward. And what was she making that you loved? Any meals come to mind? I loved her lasagna. I think that was her, like, signature thing. Like, she, whenever she would make it, she'd end up having to make, like, three or four pans of it. Yeah. Because, like, <laughs> my sisters would want a pan, the neighbors would want a pan, like, everybody would devour one. We'd eat it for lunch, and then, like, we'd have the second pan for dinner. Yeah. And it was just, like, that was, I think, like, one of the most memorable things she made. And that was, like, the Italian side of it. And then she was also a big crepe person because she was French, and she learned how to cook Italian food from okay. my father's mother. Yeah. So she married into an Italian family and had to learn, like, all these Italian dishes and lasagna and gravy being one of them, but... When my friends would spend the night or my brother's friends would spend the night, it was always Saturday morning, like a crepe buffet. She'd like pull out all the stops, like chocolate sauce, fruits, sugars, nice. uh, lemons, everything, syrup, whipped cream, all like spread out on the table. Yeah. And just a giant never ending stack of like warm, steamy crepes that we would like fill. And that was like 
everybody wanted to stay at Sasso's house because then they got grapes Saturday morning. <laughs> I love it, man. It sounds like we had a, a fairly similar upbringing. I'm, I'm of the same mind. I mean, if I wasn't broadcasting, I definitely would have, you know, traveled down the executive chef uh, like you have. Uh, and still today, probably have a couple kids. I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old, and we have the same sort of mentality as like, you know, you and I did growing up, where it was like, even like you said, even if it was like ordering sushi in, you're still sitting at the mm-hmm. table together as a family. There's something about, you know, food and how it um, how it really can connect with people. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think uh, everybody can relate to because at some point or another they've shared a special meal around the table. So it has that very powerful nostalgic uh, feeling to it that really everybody can relate to, no matter how they grew up or what walk of life they're in. Uh, it's something very special and unique. Yeah, totally. And, and this might be an impossible question for you to answer, but what is your first food memory? Ooh, I don't know if I've ever been asked that before. Hmm. My first food memory. I'd have to like think back on that. Like you I know, said, it might be an impossible uh, question. But. Yeah, that might be an impossible one because I mean, I just have so many food memories. And, like, when you think back, you, it's hard to, like, remember the actual, like, age you were or mm. what it is. You know, the cool thing I like you know, about uh, food, food, Joe, is, like, like music, certain foods will make you think of, you know, maybe being four or five years old or ten years old or, you know what I mean? Like, there's not many things that, that have that sensory response. Uh, music and food, uh, of course, are, are like that. I think it's one of those because they use all of the senses when you're playing it or creating it. Mm-hmm. You're, it's a touch, hear, uh, feel, like everything kind of comes into effect. So really it's like a full sensory experience uh, with music and with food. Mm-hmm. Personally, what's what's your comfort food? My comfort food, like no, no hesitation would be nachos. <laughs> love it i feel like i have to i eat nachos like once a week maybe yeah otherwise i like start feeling like withdrawal symptoms <laughs> like i'm just like a nacho fanatic that's awesome as a executive chef there must be pressure when friends are coming over what are you making to impress them you know i think it's often pasta yeah it's like my go-to um, one, because there's like something special about like handmade pasta, like something you're creating really from scratch with your hands that you're then sharing with other people and they're eating like, you know, the fruit of your labor, but it's also something not everybody's had fresh pasta and then fresh pasta cooked and finished as it should be. They may have had fresh pasta and it wasn't the best. And almost at that point, like, Pretty good dried pasta is better than shitty fresh pasta, <laughs> if that makes sense. Totally. So, yeah, you yeah. know, I've really kind of like seeing people's reactions when they have like a hot bowl of perfectly cooked fresh pasta for the first time. And it's like you see this like light go off in their eyes and this kind of like this sparkle and sense of like almost being transported back to being a kid for them. Like the first time they ate pasta, whether it be like out of that blue box with mac and cheese or whatever it is, but kind of this whole transformative experience. So I think pasta is like my, my go-to to, to impress some guests. Okay. And we, we talk pressure with the guests and stuff. People come over to your house. 
Talk about the pressures of working in a three Michelin starred restaurant. It's unlike anything I think you can really even understand unless you're doing it. I mean, I'm not familiar with other industries and like the pressures of working in an office or in a sales position or on radio. Um, so maybe there are similarities, but it's kind of the thing where almost band of brothers, like you're all in it together and the, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So you're constantly pushing each other to be better. And that's almost the best environment because then you're holding the guy next to you to the same standards. And if someone's starting to slip, you need to rely on the rest of the team to motivate them and to put the pressure on them to do better and to hold those same standards because everyone that is coming to eat there, sure, you're cooking there every day, but for the guest, this is a special meal for them. It may be the one time they're ever going to eat at a three Michelin star restaurant, or they've spent saved up six months of paychecks to get to come eat there. Mm-hmm. And you want to make sure they have the best possible experience. Even if you're having a bad day in the kitchen, they don't need to know that. And they don't, they shouldn't need to feel that they want to have just as good of a time as your best day and your best service. So I think that's where a lot of the pressure comes from is like you want to give the guest that same high standard no matter what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so like there's an incredible amount of pressure just thinking about the guest's perspective, let alone like the way the chef is looking at you or standing over you. And there's just a whole lot of layers to it. It's almost like you can't fail. You can't. And if you do, you don't let anyone know. You pretend you're not, and that kind of keeps you going in a weird, I guess, twisted way. If something goes wrong, it's not that it went wrong, but it's how you recover from it Mm -hmm. that really kind of defines the best cooks in that environment. Hmm. It's how quickly you can create a solution instead of just having the, the failure. Right. Tell us about Top Chef now. What's what's that process like? Uh, becoming a contestant and and all and all that. So I I mean coming becoming a contestant. I think everyone has a different origin story to it. Like I know some of the people that I had done it with. Uh, they had applied five or six times, sent in videos, done the whole gambit of interviews, and hadn't gotten selected. And it was just a long, grueling selection process. Uh, my own personal experience, I was cooking at Lazy Bear at the time, which is a very open kitchen, almost like a fine dining dinner party. It was two Michelin stars, and a group of casting producers were there for dinner and had interacted with me and saw me, and the next day had reached out asking if I would be interested in interviewing for the show. Oh, nice. And I had never seen Top Chef before. I had just heard of it as the show on Bravo. I was knew it, but I had never seen it. And I kind of like just thought it was a bunch of chefs living in a house like filled with drama. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, after doing it, I couldn't have been more wrong. Right. But I, I told them no. Really? I was like, no, I'm good. Like, no, thanks. And they were very persistent. They had called me back about three or four times. And then it was actually my girlfriend that had convinced me, you know, everything happens for a reason. Maybe this is the right path for us. Uh, why don't you just give them a shot, do the interviews, and see what happens? And hmm. kind of went down that path. The next thing I knew, I was in Colorado uh, getting ready to compete. 
And how nerve wracking is that in comparison to what you were used to? It's two different kinds of nerve wracking because in like those high, high end kitchens, no one really knows if they have a bad dish, no one really knows who cooked it. There's not necessarily a face to it mm-hmm. where you're on national tell or international television. Right. And if you do something silly or make a mistake or say something wrong, everyone's going to know it was you that did it. So it's a different kind of pressure. And did you find that you, you thrived in that environment? I think I did. Um, it was, it was unlike, I didn't, I think it helped that I didn't know what I was getting myself into right. when I got there. And a lot of the other shift testants had like watched every season and had been like adamant viewers and kind of knew what to expect. And they didn't fare as well. Almost maybe they were overthinking it yeah, versus possibly. I was just there approaching every day, like a new day and a new challenge. And, you know, at the end of the day, they just want you to cook good food. Right. And that's, I think, what you have to do, and you can't overthink it. Right on, man. What a what a cool thing to kind of, uh, you know, branch out into. It was awesome. I'm really, really grateful for the experience. It was a huge learning experience. I, bet. I think what a lot of people don't see on TV is how much personal growth everybody goes through, especially mm-hmm. if you're on it for many, many weeks. Because then... You know, they're really drilling into you. It's almost like a boot camp for chefs. Like, what is your voice? What is your style? Why did you make this decision? Why did you put this on the plate? If you only have a certain amount of time, you're going to have to make sacrifices. You're not going to be able to do everything you want to do. And how are you going to then best represent your voice on a plate with a bite of food in that given amount of time? And it really makes you reevaluate your entire position and approach to cooking and food and what's important to you as a chef and as an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool, man. Uh, Joe, I'd love to get outside of, uh, you know, being a chef cooking and of course what you're known for. What was the music in the Sasto, uh, house as a kid growing up? Like what are the, what are the bands that your parents are playing and exposing you to? That's an interesting question because it's, I feel like I, had a, I was in a unique situation, and I didn't realize it till I got much older, and even now still. I guess I'm, I don't know if uncultured is the right word, <laughs> but I, I have a very small window and view of music and band outside of what I've personally gotten comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Growing up, my dad would always just play Italian music. Really? Okay. And that was pretty much it. And it was like maybe Italian opera or just Italian singing or, and I honestly don't even know what it was or who it was, but that was like it. Music was not a big part of the household growing up. Mm -hmm. Well, now like, you know, my, my girlfriend, my partner, she grew up in the opposite world where she was on tour with bands. Her dad is a music and lighting designer and, you know, the whole music industry from Prince to Paul McCartney was a huge part of her life. Okay. So I'm like slowly learning a whole new side of music and the power the music has compared to the power the food has. So it's like, I didn't realize until now how little I knew about music and about people. And still she'll like name a band or a singer or an artist 
and I'll have no idea who they are. And they're, they're very well known for the most part. And I'm just completely oblivious to it. And it's kind of, uh, I guess one of my only like blind sides, you know? Wow. Interesting. And so which band was your first concert? (laughs) My first concert, I think had to have been fallout boy in high school. Okay. You know what? They probably put on a pretty good show though. They've, they had a few like massive radio hits. They did. They were very popular at that time. And, you know, a friend of mine, I went to high school with um, Brandon Yuri, the singer from Panic at the Disco. No way. Okay, cool. And they were starting, they weren't really a band yet at the time. And, you know, he was, oh, you know, I have this band, I have this band, you guys got to come see me. And a lot of people just kind of like, oh, yeah, like that'll go nowhere. Mm. And, you know, he eventually started opening for Fallout Boy. Totally. When, and Fall Boy would play in Vegas. So that kind of got us to go support him and to see Fall Out Boy. And that was kind of my first first concerts and intro into music there. But I mean, even so, I've been to very, very few concerts, I think, comparatively to a lot of people. Yeah. I think most people probably see, you know, a couple, two, three, four, maybe a year kind of thing, maybe. I'll be lucky if I see one a year. Really? Oh yeah, I I don't even know. Have I been to a show this year? Wow, I'm, I'm maybe a, I'm yeah. A, I, be, I think I maybe been to one. That's crazy. Even I, so, I, I'm at yeah, least one not, or one or two um, a month at least. Right, and I mean, I I think it's just kind of a uh, goes like to say like how I don't know, uh, you know, unconnected connected to that that industry I am. Yeah. But I mean, I totally appreciate it because it's a performing art. It's a, it's they're they're just like incredible artists and what they do and what their whole team is able to put together. It's the show as much as the kitchen is and creating a service and an experience for a diner. Oh, totally. You know, it's like the whole production behind it. It's a pretty incredible thing. Yeah. Well, like I was mentioning off the top there, uh, you know how the the senses and everything, and there's a direct correlation. Like the, the, there's a parallel line between you know music and and food. I mean, there, there's definitely something that grab grabs people more than most. Definitely, yes, yeah. I completely agree with you. What do you What are you binge watching right now, man? If you're finding time, what are you What are you binging? Oh boy, I mean, I the whole I I enjoy the whole range from like guilty pleasure shows on like Bravo, yeah, to like the good things like Stranger Things on Netflix, great show, uh, Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. you know the. Handmaid's Tale, that's a scary one. Okay. I kind of watched that one, though, because that almost hits too close to home. But, mm. you know, the, I, I I enjoy binge-watching more than, you know, I it's weird. I feel like a lot of people now have realized that I have no problem watching, like, eight-hour-long episodes back-to-back-to-back <laughs> without realizing what's happening. Totally. But I won't commit to a two-hour movie. Right. It's too long. And I'll be like, oh, I can't put that movie on. That's way too long. Like, I don't want to sit here for two hours. Right. Meanwhile. But then I was like, easily, yeah, I'll easily just let the next episode keep playing on Netflix without even thinking about it. Right. Right. Are you a comic book guy? You watch all those superhero uh, movies, Avengers, Deadpool, Batman, Superman, and all that? Yes. I'm, I'm not the comic books themselves, but I'm a big Marvel fan. Yeah. I think Iron Man would probably be my favorite. I'm a big oh, fan man. of Tony Stark. I tell you that right uh, out of the gate. Batman's that, not Marvel, though, right? No, so Batman, Batman is DC. Batman is DC. DC. But, but I thought that the Batman Superman. I mean, it got it got panned. But I thought that was a, a really good movie, with the exception of maybe like ten percent of the movie wasn't very good. 
I would. I'm just. I'm a huge fan of Christopher Nolan's Batman series, from like Batman Begins to right. The Dark Knight. And I feel like to me that'll always be. Everybody has their own like who's Batman and which Batman is the best. Like going all the way back, and like that's my Batman. Mm-hmm. No, it's definitely. Uh, what's what's the actor's name again? The guy that freaked out on the uh, the cast of one of the crew members. Um, oh, uh, Christian Bale. Uh, yeah, he's got to be the best guy. He's got to be. I, I enjoyed his performance. I mean, Heath Ledger was just something else. I think he really like kind of defined that entire series when he was the Joker. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Uh, ben Affleck actually surprised me as the Batman. I don't know. I'm trying to remember if I saw that one. I may have seen part of it where it was him versus Superman, right? Yeah. I, didn't, I don't know if I've seen that whole movie, though. That's I, pretty good. I don't know if I ever got to that one. Yeah, it's pretty good. If you could have a superpower, which power would you pick teleportation <laughs> there you go yes dude i hate traffic and just sitting and waiting to get somewhere where if i could teleport i could like like that movie uh the movie jumper yeah where he just like teleports to go surfing in the morning in like bali that teleports to the top of the pyramids to eat lunch mm-hmm. and giza then like teleports to paris for dinner then he's like back at his flat in New York City by bedtime. Like that would be the ultimate superpower. There's nothing better. Whenever anybody asks, because of course some sometimes they'll well it was flying or whatever. Well, what would you want? No, flying still takes time. It, totally, and I'm always like, dude, teleportation. There's nothing better. Teleportation. There's nothing better than. But of course, you got to be able to, you know, teleport with whatever you can hold on your person. Like so, you know, if you're whatever just grab a buddy and your your yeah or your go. clothes which yeah. would be important if you <laughs> could teleport but then you didn't get right. your clothes to do that'll make things a little more complicated as well right. but i'd still probably pick it anyway <laughs> <laughs> probably still pick i it. would still take it as well <laughs> let me throw you an oddball here what do, what are your thoughts on legalized marijuana just came to canada last year right uh i was up there i did some dinners with infused dinners up in canada last year uh right around that time i've been doing a couple here in the states as well as mm-hmm. it's legalizing in different states and i mean i think it has huge potential uh you know for the plant itself for the industry for kind of other different elements and the health benefits behind it. Totally. But I think the one thing that often gets overlooked, and I don't know if you guys are seeing that side of it in Canada, but here in California, a lot of those small farmers and grassroots businesses and the family co-ops that have been doing this for the past 50, 60 years are going out of business and going bankrupt Mm. because they can't meet all the demands and the costs of getting federally or I mean uh, getting government uh, approval and all the regulation and all the red tape and so now all of these laws and systems that are coming into place for testing and for packaging and things that they've never had to deal with in the past which obviously is great for the consumer and protects it and makes it a safe product and consistent it's really though hurting those small communities that really have been supporting the plant for so long so there's obviously it's a double-edged sword and if they're you know just as long as people i think are realizing that or at least seeing those unintended consequences of the legalization Mm. not that it shouldn't be legalized but maybe if they're you know if we could create solutions for them as well and i know some companies have like i know now there are companies that have 
popped up that are helping bring together a lot of those small family farms, providing them with the structure and the infrastructure to meet the government regulations to get all of their products tested and properly packaged. Mm-hmm. So that way they're not going out of business. But I just know there is a lot of those small businesses that are not able to keep up with the demand of legalization. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't. Are I you guys don't dealing know. with that same thing up there? I, I, I mean, I'm I imagine, sure. but I don't know. I would think so, but uh, at the same time, you know, honestly, for me, Joe, I mean, I've bought from the same guy from the last, you know, fifteen years. My life, as far as marijuana, has not changed at all since you know. Right, it, you guys still have like the what do you call it, the gray market, the black market? The, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's always going to exist, even even though there's going to be federally regulated uh, weed shops and, you know, tinctures and CBD oils and, and everything else. You can buy the pipes and the vaporizers and, and, and whatnot. I don't know that you're ever going to see those little guys go away because just, well, first off on just the cost alone it, it is one thing. Like it's so much more expensive to go to a dispensary, right? Here. With the taxes and everything. Totally, and and also, you know, if you've been buying from the same guy, at least you know what you're getting, and it's also probably your friend at that point. So you just do right. You, you ignore your friend now because it's legal, and you should be going to the dispensary. Probably not. I'm not going to. Well, it's an interesting take on it because I totally can relate to that. But it's that has gone so. That's the thing of the past here at least in california i know yeah. like on the east coast there's still like those guys that you go to and it's too hard to get um but like yeah. in, i don't know i haven't heard of or known anybody in the past i don't even know eight eight years that has had a weed guy everybody just goes to the store because right. that's where you get it now right like uh, you know I, all those guys the, the whole gray and black market has definitely gone out of business here hmm. And it's interesting that, but I think a lot of it has to do with supply and demand. Like when I was in Canada, I went to Winnipeg and I couldn't buy flour anywhere. Really? It was all just like hash and distillate and extracts and Hmm. nobody had fresh flour, any of the dispensaries. Really? Um, And it was just like, they're like, yeah, we just can't. There's because it all has to be governmentally grown. Right. (laughs) And the whole system, I think that you guys have up there is just different than the way that they're handling it here in California. Where there's so much plant on the shelves, it's almost to the point where it's sitting there for a month or two before it gets sold, right. which is like the inverse effect where it's like not as fresh as you want it because there's so much of it. Well, right out of the gate, uh, you know, the Canadian government was, um, you know, they're sending out weed and it's coming to people that are buying it off, you know, the website or where the hell it was and it's coming and it's being shipped and it's moldy. Like, what? come on, guys. I mean, it's great that you've taken the step to legalize it because it should be legalized, but like, you know. You right, kinda, but it's not kinda, as good anymore. Totally. You, you tripped out of the starting gate, guys, you know. Yep, Get one of the and, unintended uh, consequences. You totally, know? yeah, yeah. Uh, let me hit you in, uh, with another, odd, and thank you again for doing this uh, today, Joe. Do you believe that aliens have visited Earth? I Absolutely. Uh, visited? Yes. So are they here now? Maybe. Kind mm-hmm. of like, I don't know if it's as extreme as Men in Black makes it out to be. Mm-hmm. Boy, wouldn't that be uh, something else if it was, though? <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I don't think it's too crazy. It wouldn't, but I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. I've, I've asked this question enough to probably 500 people, 
And, uh, you know, I would say of that 400 believe that, yeah, they've visited. And, right. Uh, and know, I mean, if you think about the vastness of the universe. Totally. To, it, to think we're the only life form is, I, I don't know. Like, really? A little bit ignorant to, at, some, at some level. Totally. I mean, it, it, it's almost like it, it, it feels like the reverse would be the crazy, like, to not have been visited. That seems right. Odd. Like there's, what that is it? The, seems the, more odd. Yeah, like the NASA Kepler program has has identified thirty eight hundred planets, thirty eight hundred. That's just from them. I mean, there's, they they think that there's like over a trillion planets in the Milky Way galaxy system alone. Come on. Yeah, and that's just this galaxy. Right. There's there's planets that are billions of years old. Like there's there's a very good chance that there's there's uh, you know, maybe it might not be a humanoid population, but there's a very good chance that there's a population of people or beings somewhere looking at us laughing. I completely agree with that. There's, I don't think that's far-fetched at all. No, I don't think so either. All right, last question, Joe, and thank you again. Uh, do, do you have a career highlight? Can you nail it down to just one? Whew. I mean, Top Chef was great. I love that. I mean, it's completely changed my career for the best. Like, I think it's just catapulted me yeah. forward. It was like a huge stepping stone. But I think like my time cooking in those Michelin star kitchens and like receiving that third Michelin star, receiving that second Michelin star was really just an, a surreal feeling because you put so much work into it. And you sacrifice so much between friends, family, holidays. Like, you give it all to the restaurant in pursuit of that. And to be able to be a part of the team and get that accolade and that award, I think, uh, is uh, was something very memorable and that will always be with me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even going into the future. Yeah. Right on, dude. Thank you again for uh, taking the time to jump on the Toddcast uh, here in Vancouver. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. It's always good to talk to a, to a Canadian. I, you guys' <laughs> accent just brings a smile to my face. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, you're easy to find online. Uh, you are at Chef Joe Sasto on Twitter. You're at Chef.Joe.Sasto on Instagram. That's it. Subscribe on iTunes at Toddcast Podcast. 